Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. What is up, everybody? Welcome into this Wednesday episode of Flippin' Bass, where we have an absolute legend, Hall of Fame pitcher, Tom Glavin, is joining me. I grew up a huge Atlanta Braves fan. To have Tom Glavin on the show is going to be an absolute blast. And we are going to talk about everything. This current Braves team, Spencer Strider, uh, that Braves broadcast with him, Smoltz, Chipper, and Frank Cora earlier in the year. Uh, the Hall of Fame. He has a, a good take on the Hall of Fame and Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and uh, what he feels about whether they should be in or whether they shouldn't be. The strike zone, if we should go to an automated strike zone or not. And of course, so many stories. John Smoltz stories, Bobby Cox stories, Deion Sanders stories. Uh, this just ends up being a really, really fun conversation with one of the best pitchers to ever do it. And uh, I hope you guys are excited to listen to it because, man, am I excited for you guys to hear this. So without further ado, let's welcome in Hall of Fame pitcher Tom Glavin. Fly ball onto the track, at the wall, it's gone! Home run! Turns on a ball, deep right field, and What a game, what a moment. All right, and I am pumped to welcome in now Hall of Fame pitcher Tom Glavin. Tom, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with earlier this year, you were part of a, a broadcast with the Braves that involved you, Smoltz, Chipper, Frank Corr, and it looked like just watching it that you guys had so much fun doing it. How cool was that experience for you guys? You know, it was a lot of fun. Um, I think obviously the the four of us together works. Um, you know, we all have a great relationship uh, with each other individually and then certainly collectively. So, um, you know, it, it works. And, and we all, you know, we've all played together. We've all been around each other a lot um, since we've been done playing. So there's a familiarity there. And, and you know, I, I think we were all a little bit, I don't want to say, I don't know if concerned is the right word, but I think maybe curious as to what exactly um, that would look like and, and what we were going to do and how it would come off. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think um, Valley Sports, you know, to their credit, they they really didn't have many guidelines. They just said, look, we want you guys to pretend you're in a bar watching a game and, and people are watching with you. And I think that's what we tried to do. And um, I think by all accounts, we did it. I think people had a really yeah. good time that that first time watching it. Um, you know, second time was a little more, I guess, some elements of a traditional broadcast. We actually did do a little play by play. We actually <laughs> did remind people what the score was from time to time. But, you know, that first time was just, you know, telling stories and having fun. And if people paid attention to what the score was, then, then that was great, too. <laughs> did you have a, a favorite moment that happened at some point throughout that first game? Um, you know, there were a few, I mean, you know, obviously I know you guys know Smoltzy. He, you know, he comes armed with material. So he had, uh, lots of stats and lots of things for us to rag on each other about. So that was, that's always fun doing that. But, 
you know, look at obviously the ending of the game, right? I mean, it, you could not have asked for a better script uh, to do something like that. And, and I think that's why we were all not leery, but a little concerned about, you know, uh, round two doing that. That first game, it couldn't have been any better. I mean, it was a, a slugfest with a walk-off home run uh, between two arch rivals. So, um, you know, the the walk-off home run and the combination of um, Smoltzy not having time to make a home run call and then, <laughs> you know, Frenchie coming up with, uh, you know, the poor Larry a crown, which, uh, you know, grew legs and turned into a T-shirt. Uh, it was a pretty good ending. So that game did involve uh, Spencer Strider on the mound. It was Strider against Justin. And and Smoltz recently said of Strider, he is so far ahead of any of us that have ever pitched in a Braves uniform. When you hear him say that and you think about Spencer Strider, um, do you agree with that statement? Uh, you know, I would I would add the caveat at this stage of his career, obviously. I mean, I think as, as time went on, I think all of us um, evolved and became better and did some things differently. Now, look at I think I say this about just about every guy that comes to the big leagues now. They're they're they have better stuff and they're probably um, a little bit more polished in some ways than than I was and John probably was. Uh, but at the same time, I hesitate to say that because I don't think they know how to pitch as well as we did yeah. when they when they get to the big league. Simply because, you know, you look at me and John, we had a we had a number of minor league innings under our belt. Um, these guys don't anymore. You know, they're getting called up to the big leagues with, you know, less than a hundred innings of minor league baseball routinely yeah. now. So, you know, the art of pitching is not necessarily there, but I think. At a younger age, these guys are learning. Obviously, they throw with velocity, but they're learning breaking balls earlier. They're learning change-ups earlier. I don't think John and I really did that. I mean, I didn't yeah. have a change-up really until two years in the big league. So, um, you know, that part of it is they're they're much more advanced. But the pitching side of it, I think, is a little bit uh, a little bit less. But in Spencer's case, um, he's got a good idea what he's trying to do. But I think more importantly he knows who he is and he knows what makes him successful. Uh, right. And that's the, that's kind of the, the basis for what he does. You know, I think a lot of guys at his age, myself included, if you ask them what they were good at, I'm not sure they had an answer. Um, yeah. If you ask them, Hey, what pitch do I need to throw in order to throw a strike? I'm not sure they would know all the time, you know, but I think Spencer knows who he is <clears throat> and does a good job of making that his foundation. But having said that there, there's some things that I've, I think that I I think we all would like to see him develop and do and add, mm -hmm. uh, and that'll come with time. I, I do. I have Smoltz on the show every single week, and we always we talk current baseball. We share a bunch of stories. It's always a lot of fun. But I know you probably have a million, and some you can share, and some you can't share. But when I talk about John Smoltz, what is a story? What is one of the first stories that comes to mind for you? Oh man, you know there's. Um, I mean, Smoltz, look, Smoltzy is just high energy, right? I mean, he's a 12-year-old kid trapped now in a 50-year-old man's body. So um, that's just how he is. That's how he's wired. And, and it's nonstop uh, all the time. Um, you know, the kind of guy that if you went on a long weekend vacation with him, you'd be worn out by the end of the weekend. There's no question about it because there's no downtime. Um, but, you know, there obviously, look, he's um, – I saw him one time on a bus in New York. Um, he had that little black book um, with all the golf courses and connections and whatever in there, um, and he couldn't find it. He lost it on the bus, and you'd have thought that his one-year-old child had disappeared. I mean, it was the panic. 
um, was just off the charts. I've seen, um, you know, the, the you, you see things between him and Maddox, um, you know, that happened all the time. You know, one of Greg's favorite things was whenever John would be driving a rental car, if we were coming back from the golf course, particularly in New York City, he stopped at a red light. He'd wait for the crosswalk to be maxim, maximum fullness and honk on the horn so that everybody's looking at John, you know, John's <laughs> beat red, embarrassed and pissed off and all of the above. So uh, it was just a fun dynamic. I mean, John never did anything too stupid um, other than what he denies when he tried to iron his shirt when he had it on and burned himself. But, um, you know, other than that, it was just goofy fun. Uh, one of my, one of my favorite managers to watch growing up, I grew up a, a big Braves fan was watching the Braves every night on TBS and watching Bobby Cox every night was just as eventful as the game oftentimes because of all the ejections and all the passion he would bring to a game. Do you have a favorite Bobby Cox ejection story? Yeah, I tell this one a lot and it was Maddox's fault. Um, <laughs> you know, it was back in those days. Um, you know, we, we had analytics in our day. We just don't didn't call it analytics, and we didn't look at it the way these guys look at it so so mm-hmm. profusely nowadays. Um, but we convinced Bobby back in those days that the guy who was pitching the next day always kept the pitching chart. Um, so we'd keep score, and you counted every pitch and every result, and you essentially kept score. But you were you were counting pitches whether they're balls, strikes, swings and misses, foul balls, whatever. And then you turned it over to the pitching coach after mm-hmm. the game, and he pro- and he processed all that information. So we convinced Bobby that it was much better for us to do the pitching chart in the in the clubhouse rather than on the bench, which it, it there was some truth to it. It's hard to see where pitches are when you're sitting on the bench. But it was more so that we could just kind of sprawl out on the couch, watch the game, relax. <laughs> we know we're pitching tomorrow, so we're just taking it easy. Anyway, there was a game that Doggy was doing the chart. And there was a lot of bickering back and forth between the dugouts with the home plate umpire. So I went upstairs about the third inning to get a cup of coffee. Uh, and I said to Doggy, um, I said, hey, you know, what's the deal with this umpire? There's a lot of arguing going back and forth. Is he is he not having a good game? And Doggy's like, you know, he's not bad. He's kind of he's kind of missed some on both sides, but he's kind of been he's been pretty consistent. But he's you know, he's been fair in terms of what he's missed. Bobby came up no sooner than Greg got that out of his mouth to get a cup of coffee and ask Greg the same question. And then Greg flips the switch, and it's like, oh, my God, Bobby, he's terrible. He's missed <laughs> so many pitches. It, it's He's been terrible all night long. And so Bobby goes out. And I was like, doggy, what are you doing? He's, he's like, what? And I said, well, you know he's going to go downstairs and get thrown out of this game now. You know that. And he said, oh, yeah, I know. So sure enough, next half <laughs> inning, there was a close pitch, and there goes Bobby, and he got thrown out of the game. So, you know, but that's how he was. I think that's why everybody loved playing for him, right? I mean, I've seen times where – you know, Bobby would sit on the bench and he'd have his reading his readers on and they'd kind of be hanging down like this, right? And he'd yeah. be, you know, looking at his lineup card and not even watching the game because he's he's going through his lineup card and trying to figure out, all right, who 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 do I have in the bullpen? Who's gonna get up next? Who might I pinch hit? All you know, the things that he's thinking about. And he would hear somebody in the dugout bitch about a pitch. And without skipping a beat, it would be, you know, punch a hole in your mask. Where is that bitch? You know, but that that's how he was. He fought tooth and nail for every every inch he could get for us players. And I think that's why everybody loved playing for him. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Well, this this current Braves team is just won their sixth division title in a row. And I, I've said this many times. I, I think your team's 14 straight is one of 
one of the records we might not see broken in sports. 14 straight division titles is is absolutely remarkable. How would you describe winning 14 division titles in a row? Um, it's crazy. I mean, I look, I agree with you. I think you uh, it kind of puts it in perspective, right? When you see this current edition yep. and and how good they've been and how dominant they've been and they've won six straight, well you got eight more to go. Um, and it, and it seems almost impossible now, you know, this group's going to be together for a while. And if everybody stays healthy, who knows, but, you know, I think it's the kind of thing that over time you appreciate it more. Uh, it's hard to completely appreciate it when you're going through it because you're just focused on doing it again. Um, you know, we knew every year coming into spring training that we were the team to beat. Um, and, and we had a lot to defend and, and, you know, a lot to live up to. And, and we tried to do that, you know, and, and, there was some pressure in that, obviously. Um, but you know, we knew, we knew we were good. We knew what we needed to do, but we knew obviously it wasn't going to last forever. But while we were doing it, we just wanted it to last one more year. We just wanted it to last that year that we were in. Um, you know, and we had some close calls along the way. We had some bumps along the way, but, uh, inevitably, I think that, uh, you know, our, our talent took over and, um, you know, over the course of 162 games, um, our depth played a big part in that, but, um, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I, again, I think I appreciate it more now, uh, looking back at it and, and probably even because of what this current team has, has accomplished. And then, like I said, you think they're not even halfway there yet. It, it's pretty crazy. I do. I think that puts it all into perspective. Everybody's talking about how good this team is, how long they're going to be good for this crazy run they're on. And then you look up and like you said, they're not even halfway there to the 14 straight that you guys were able to accomplish. Uh, I, I want to ask you a, a little bit about your being drafted to play hockey, which is remarkable to me because baseball players, there's not typically that crossover of baseball and hockey. You see oftentimes athletes and uh, baseball with another sport, but you know, you're one of the players that really only comes to mind when I think of MLB draft and then the NHL draft, which happened five days later, by the way. So you're drafted for baseball, you get drafted to play hockey. Was it at all a hard decision for you to end up sticking with baseball? Um, yeah, a little bit, but not, not so much in a, in a, in a professional format. Um, it was more, you know, was, did I want to go to college and, and, and go that route versus signing professionally to go play baseball? Um, you know, it was the kind of thing that, um, looking back at it, you know, cause people ask me, you know, what, what kind of baseball player, what kind of hockey player were you? I was a better hockey player at that stage of the game than I was a pitcher. I, as a pitcher at that stage of the game, I just threw the ball. I didn't, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Yeah. I had a good arm. Um, you know, like most kids at that stage, right? My, my change up in those days was, all right, well, let me try to throw this next pitch harder than I threw the last one. That's how I changed speeds. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, but I had a good arm and, and, but as a hockey player, I was, I was really polished as a hockey player. I was a good hockey player. Um, so that's what it came down to, you know, I mean, my, my dad was, a had a small construction company up in Boston and, and, you know, so to have a scholarship was a big deal, uh, to have, to take that burden off his shoulders was a big deal to me. And, and, you know, the decision, uh, to forego that didn't come lightly. Um, you know, but I think I sat down obviously with baseball, it's a lot different than hockey, um, baseball, they draft you, they want to sign you particularly a high draft pick. So, um, they came after the brace came after me right away and tried to get me signed. And, and, you know, ultimately, 
once they got the money to where, okay, if I, this doesn't work out, I can go back and I can pay for my own college and my dad doesn't have to deal with that. And, and, you know, um, kind of took that burden away. Then I felt like when I went over the pros and cons of both sports, you know, there were a few different things back then. I mean, obviously back in the middle eighties, hockey players weren't making a lot of money. They are now, yeah. uh, hockey, hockey players weren't playing into their late thirties. They are now, um, you know, the health side of it was a much bigger positive for baseball. Um, uh, but I think inevitably it came down to, I was a left-handed pitcher and, and that gave me an advantage in baseball yeah. that I didn't have in hockey, you know, at, at six feet tall and 175 pounds coming out of high school, I was yeah. no different than just about anybody else that got drafted in the NHL. So I figured I better take advantage of this left-handed <laughs> thing and see how it works out. And it worked out. All right. Speaking of multiple sports, you were teammates with one of the best multi-sport athletes to, to ever, to ever do it. And Deion Sanders, how would you describe Tom? How would you describe Deion Sanders, the baseball player? Um, very raw. Um, you know, I think that's the thing with Deion as a baseball player that I'm curious about, um, is, you know, had he, had he dedicated more time to that, how good could he have been? Um, you know, football, he was obviously extremely gifted, uh, probably didn't have to work as hard at football as he did at baseball. Um, you know, and, and, and I think that's, that's an important aspect of it all. And, and, you know, in baseball, I think he, he, like I said, he, he was raw. He had a ton of talent. Um, there was not many more things more fun than watching him hit a ball in the gap, uh, and go from, you know, home plate to third base. Um, it was scary. Sometimes I can promise you that, you know, if we were on base ahead of him and he hit a ball in the gap that it was like, oh, my God, he's going to catch me by the time we <laughs> both get to third base. So, you know, it was it was a little intimidating, but it, he was fun to watch, you know, and, and you know, it's funny. I think that obviously he's very much in the news right now with everything he's doing at Colorado and, and, and that program. And, and I've read a lot of stories about him. And, you know, I think a lot of guys have the same perception of him that I did as a teammate. You know, he was a good teammate. He really was. And, and there was. You know, I've said to people, uh, you know, when we signed Dion, I think like a lot of guys who I've read uh, articles that have been written about Dion lately is, you know, we all had the same question, like, oh, my God, what's this guy going to be like? And he was a great teammate. Um, but I think Dion was really at the forefront of of the whole marketing thing. You know, when you were in the clubhouse and there was nobody around, he was Dion. But the minute a camera was on him or he was outside somewhere, it was prime time. Uh, and he knew how to flip that switch and he was really, really good at it, but, um, he was, he was a ton of fun to be around. What, what do you think makes him a great teammate that also makes him as successful as a coach as he is right now? Is there any correlation there? Cause like you, like you said, he's probably the biggest topic in sports right now is how good of a job he's doing coaching. Does that surprise you at all that he's having the success that he is right now? I mean, I, you know, sometimes, yeah, because I think a lot of guys who are great players, it doesn't translate as coaches, right? Because I think that, um, you know, and I find myself doing that sometimes when I would coach my kids, you know, you, you, you try to teach them something, you try to tell them something and they can't get it. And sometimes you get frustrated because of your ability to get things or your ability to be successful. Like, why can't you get this? Right. Um, and, and it's the kind of thing that if I, if I tell you a hundred times and you haven't gotten it, then I clearly have to tell you 101 because you don't know yeah. when you're, when it's going to click. Right. And so I think a lot of really good players are, are, have a hard time with that patience side of it. Um, but I think with Dion, look, Dion's a very faithful guy, right? He makes no mistake about his 
his faith in God, and and I think that's what drives him, and it gives it gives him. A, there's a peace about him when you're around him, but I think too when you listen to him talk, and I, and I think this is true, and it might be easier for Dion because of the success that he's had over his career, but he really doesn't care what people think about him. You know, he does he he does his thing. He does his thing the way he thinks it needs to be done. And that's all he cares about. And, and, and again, I think having been around him and knowing what a positive person he is uh, and also having that football side of things to where, you know, it's all about getting guys amped up and getting guys ready to play and go out there on Saturday afternoon. I think those are all things that he was always, always really good at. And, and I think you're seeing it now, you know, he's got a tremendous ability, I think for a couple of things. Number one, He's a calming influence on those kids that are playing for him, and he's given them a ton of direction. And he's a very patient guy, right? And and, and he just wants what's best for those guys and, and tries to, you know, put them in situations where they can go out there and succeed. And and they believe in him. And and you know, when uh, when you have uh, when you have the ability to make guys believe in you, I think it ha- it it certainly puts you in a position where you can achieve some great things. Yeah, Smoltz will just tell you that he was a better uh, fisher than he was, and that's really the only the only conversation. <laughs> I did, I did read that. You're right. Imagine that, John. John bringing it back to him being better than somebody at something. Imagine that. Uh, Tom, I, I want to ask about the commercial, the the famous Nike commercial. Chicks dig the long ball. How how did that commercial? even come about it, it turned into and is still probably the most famous baseball commercial that has ever existed you know it's funny now when we talked about the broadcast we all did uh, earlier in this show um that's one thing i probably did forget is you know we talked about that commercial during the broadcast and, and i think that was the first time i really realized how mad john was and is that he was not in that commercial <laughs> um and that certainly continues to be true to this day but anyway um you know, it, it was one of those things that, look, I was a longtime Nike guy. Greg was a longtime Nike guy. And, you know, Nike was getting more and more into different things. And um, and I remember my agent talking to me about maybe doing something. And I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, I'd be interested in doing it and or doing something and, and not knowing what. Um, so I think it was the kind of thing that, honestly, my agent kind of prodded them a little bit and tried to get them to do something and, and kind of kept putting a bug in their ear about trying to come up with something. So... Uh, when he called me and said, hey, you know, Nike wants to do a commercial uh, centered around, you know, the home run chase and you and Doggy and whatever, you interested? I was like, of course. Um, you know, I mean, everybody wants, you know, to have a commercial or something, right? I mean, you want to have those those endorsements. So yeah. uh, I was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. I'll do it. If Greg will do it, I'll do it. And so, you know, truth be told, you know, we did that commercial over over a road trip and we did the first part um was in philadelphia where you saw a lot of the batting practice Mm -hmm. stuff and a lot of the rocky theme stuff and things like that and uh then the second half we did it in florida where there's a lot more of the skeet swinging at the skeets and you know the sauna scene Mm -hmm. and all you know kind of all that stuff so i think as we're doing it in the second phase of it in florida greg and i are like what the hell are they doing with this where are they going what is this you know what what is this going to even be you know And, and i remember I remember I knew it was coming out and I walked into the clubhouse in Atlanta in Fulton County Stadium in the old ballpark and I'm in the in the players lounge getting something to eat and the next thing you know here it is it comes on and I'm just thinking oh my god I'm here I'm trapped I can't go anywhere everybody's watching this I hope it's good you know <laughs> I, said, I said I had no idea um and I have to say when it came on and it played I was like 
you know, internally, I was kind of like, that was pretty good, you know, and, and the reaction from guys was good. But I think over time, you know, it took on a life of its own. And, and I think largely because, you know, for people who know Greg and I, that was so out of our element. You know, I think for the fan base, you know, fans think they know you through watching you on TV right. and, and seeing you in interviews. So they think they know you, which to some extent, I guess they can get a sense for who you are and what you're about. And I think for people, too, it, it was the kind of thing that it was so uncharacteristic for Greg and I. Um, and I think that's what made it fun. And, and you know, it, it you know, it was it was funny. It was silly. It was funny. Yeah. But it turned out to be a, a really good commercial. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I want to I wanna ask you about something you, you recently said and it's a really interesting conversation to me lately and something that's very popular in the baseball world right now, but you obviously played in the, the height of the steroid era, correct? You know, the Mark McGuire's, the Barry Bonds of the world. And, and you were recently talking about it and said that you think it is the right choice to not have those guys in the hall of fame, but you're not closed minded to it. Said you're more open-minded to it. If somebody is able to change your mind about it, is that, is that still right. where you, where you stand about the situation? That's fair, and, and I think it, it pertains more to Barry and Roger probably than anybody else, right? And, and um, you know, I, I think it's the kind of thing that as I get older, I guess I get a little bit more mellow and a little bit less um, hard-headed about some things, and, and I understand that, um, you know, sometimes you have to have discussions. And, and, look, Barry and Roger obviously are the poster child or children for for that whole era. And, and you know, listen, I think in, in – in both of their cases, um, I think you can make an argument that they were Hall of Fame type players um, before maybe there was some suspicion about some things they might have been doing. Yeah. So, um, you know, and and I'm not going to sit here and tell you unequivocally that there's nobody in the Baseball Hall of Fame that ever did, did that. Right. Uh, I can't tell you that. Um, and I think it would be naive to say that we don't have somebody. But, you know, so given all those things, I, again, I think it's the kind of thing, okay, well, I, at this moment, I think it's the right decision um, for a lot of reasons. But if you feel strongly that you think it's wrong, then then persuade me. Tell, yeah. tell me why I'm wrong, right? I don't I don't think I have the burden of proof on me. Um, I think that, you know, if you feel or somebody feels strongly that those guys should be in the Hall of Fame, okay, well, then present your case and I'll listen to you. I'm not saying I'll change my mind, but I'll listen to you. One of, one of my thoughts on this situation, because I, I – kind of went back and forth on it and then landed pretty much around here. And this is again about Barry and, and Roger. I, I think Barry Bonds is the, the greatest hitter the game has ever seen. If we're just talking hitting it, it I think Barry Bonds is that guy. My, my thought went to, if you're going to have a museum with the greatest baseball players of all time, right? It, I feel like those guys need to be acknowledged there. And I think having like a wing, its own area, where you acknowledge that this was the steroid era of baseball. It did happen. If you really want to talk about it, it might have saved baseball in 1998 with the McGuire and Sosa home run chase. So just having its own area in the Hall of Fame where everybody knows 
Steroids were taken. There was a steroid era in baseball, but not completely omitting the fact that these guys played baseball, some of them better than anybody else has done it. And uh, I just think that they should be acknowledged in there somewhere. And, and listen, again, I don't disagree with that, right? Again, um, I, I've heard that argument. I honestly haven't given it much thought. Um, but again, okay, well, let's have the discussion and, let, and, let's, and let's talk about it. Because, you know, I think on the other side, some people will probably say, well, you know, obviously baseball fans know of those guys and they know who they are. Do we need to bring attention to that in, in the Hall yeah. of Fame? I don't know, right? I don't, I don't know. Let's have the conversation. But again, to your point, I think that's what makes particularly Barry different, right? If, if, if you're going to look at Barry and say, hey, um, you know, he did something the year he hit 73 home runs. Okay, fine. But look at his body of work before that, yep. right? I mean, he was a, he was the best player of our generation. He was the first guy, if I'm not mistaken, to have 400 home runs and 400 stolen bases. Um, so, I mean, that to me is is the part uh, that I feel bad about is that you know if if the home run thing was what what precipitated everything beyond that with with Mark and and uh, Sammy, um, it's unfortunate because again. Barry was a Hall of Fame player before that. He was the best player uh, in our generation. He, you know, he did things that nobody else could do. So, I mean, I yeah. think that's where I'm a little bit more open-minded to the argument, right? Because there's a body of work there. Some of the other yeah. guys maybe who are being suspected of doing some things, it's hard to differentiate where did it start and 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 what kind of player were they without it? Um, you know, so that that to me is is where it gets a little bit more difficult, but yeah. um you know, look, I, I don't, I don't disagree with what you're saying. I mean, it, it's, it's almost silly on, on the one hand, to just completely ignore it. Um, you know, it's a part of the game. Um, you know, much like I know it's a different conversation, but you know, the Pete Rose conversation. But yeah. um, you know, I mean, those guys did some. Uh, Barry and Roger did some really good things. Um, you know, and and obviously they have Hall of Fame numbers. Um, I don't, I don't know that completely ignoring it is the right way to go either. Yeah. Tom, a couple of uh, fun questions for you before we finish up. The first of which being in your career, who was the toughest out for you that you had to face? Um, Mike Redmond, uh, catcher for the Marlins, yeah. backup catcher for the Marlins, uh, wore me out. I feel better about it though, because I've learned um, that he also, I think wore out Randy Johnson and Mike Hampton <laughs> too. So it wasn't, it wasn't just me. <laughs> Um, but it's funny how, you know, we all have that guy, right? And a lot of times it's not the guy you would think. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, Tony Gwynn had pretty good success against me and, and I know some other guys did too, but, um, you know, to the point of just like looking at the numbers and going, Oh my God, like I think Redmond <laughs> hit over, I think he hit over 500 off me, you know, no, not any, no damage, so to speak, but you know, I just, I couldn't get the guy out. I'll ask the question in reverse because you also won four silver sluggers as a pitcher. So when you were in the box, who was the toughest pitcher you had to face? Probably Randy Johnson um, and Kevin Brown. Um, you know, Kevin Kevin Brown was probably and and I was a good I was good at bunting. I mean, that was one of my biggest attributes and why I won so many silver sluggers is because I would typically lead pitchers and sacrifice bunts every year. Kevin Brown was the hardest guy to bunt. He just had that heavy ass sinker that it moved all over the place and it was just hard to square it up and put down a good bunt. Um, so I would say him from that standpoint. And then Randy, obviously just from a hitting standpoint, I remember later in my career, I faced Randy and it was, 
you know, good morning, good afternoon, good night. It was 98, 99, 100 ghosted out. I was like, all right, then. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, that's probably a pretty, that's one of the tougher ABs for anybody. I can only imagine. Uh, so what are your, what are your thoughts on what the game appears to be heading to? I don't know if it's going to be a challenge system or eventually the automatic strike zone, but what are, what are your thoughts there with a potential automatic strike zone in the game of baseball? Uh, not a fan at all. Um, you know, I think that's a that's a big part of the cat and mouse game of baseball. Um, you know, I think that uh, I understand what baseball is doing. And listen, I'm, I'm on board with with what this year has been. It's a way, way better product to watch this year than it has been uh, in the last five years. I've watched more baseball this year than I have in the last five years, uh, simply because it's a better product to watch right now. I think that um the 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 three outcome three outcome game that took four and a half hours was just not a lot of fun right sitting there for four and a half hours to watch home runs strikeouts and walks was just not much fun yeah um with the rule changes now and and particularly the pitch clock you've eliminated so much dead time um you know i got a much better chance to sit down and watch a ball game that's going to last two and a half hours than i do four and a half hours you're going to lose me um, and you're going to lose a lot of marginal baseball fans. So I think that's been huge. The no shifting, the bigger bases, you know, I, I don't know how much the bigger bases has played into the stolen base aspect of it. Um, but stolen bases are more a part of the game, which is more fun. You know, it's fun watching, you know, I kind of, I kind of laugh a little bit, uh, watching pitchers today trying to control the running game, trying to figure out, uh, when to throw over or trying to figure out yeah. slide steps and, and do all those things that, you know, we had to do, um, you know, the the ninth, the late 80s St. Louis Cardinals were single handedly the reason why I learned how to slide step, because those guys ran all over you if you didn't pay attention to them. So, um, you know, those things necessitate pitchers having to do some things. The no shift, I think, has been great. You know, the, the single sexy again. Right. Yeah. Uh, and not everybody's trying to hit home runs. So. I think it's a much better product now. Listen, the replay thing, I get it. You want to get calls right, right? And, and you know, umpires are are right a vast majority of the time. But, you know, I do miss the occasional not or even more than the occasional manager getting thrown out of a game because I he's agree. arguing for a call. You know, a lot of that is gone. Um, I just – I really – I really draw the line on the home plate umpire in the strike zone. I do. I mean, I just think that's such a big part of the game, both for hitters and pitchers, right? I mean, if you're a pitcher and you can fill up the zone and you make it hard for an umpire not to call strikes, that's a good thing, right? I yeah. mean, if you're a hitter and you've got the reputation of being a great hitter and in the strike zone and the command of the strike zone, you're going to get the benefit of some calls. I mean, that's just, to me, that's a part of the game I just don't want to see go away. Yeah. Tom, this has been a lot of fun, man. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, the stories, the conversations, they've been a lot of fun. So I appreciate it so much. Happy to do it. Let's do it again. All right. Sounds good. Let's do it. Thank you. See ya. All right. Awesome. Thanks, man. All right, man. You're welcome. Have a good day. I literally, I literally have smolts in like 20 minutes. So I am talking to him <laughs> in a few. <laughs> All right. Tell him, tell him I said not to iron his shirt while he's wearing it. <laughs> I will. <laughs> All right. We'll see you. All right. See ya. All right. Just wanted to thank Tom Glavin again for joining me. I could do this for hours. There are so many stories to be told and I could sit here and listen to them all day long. The Bobby Cox stories, the Greg Maddox stories, John Smoltz, Deion Sanders. To me, that is always my favorite part of getting to talk to these 
Hall of Famers that that I get to. It's it's hearing the stories from the past and just laughing about them all. But uh, also to be able to dive in a little bit on on their inside of the current game and the current state of baseball and uh, the current Braves team that Tom Glavin is watching. It, I just I have an absolute blast doing it, and I hope you all enjoy listening to it as much as I do. But that does it for this Wednesday episode of Flipping Bats. Make sure you guys are subscribed wherever you listen to your podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever. We're also on all social media. You can watch everything we do on YouTube at Flipping Bats Pod. But. That does it for this Wednesday episode. Until tomorrow, my friends, peace.